So far in this podcast, we've encountered Julius Caesar, who became dictator for life as a direct result of his personal, political, and military career. We then encountered Augustus, who created the empire and became the first emperor also as a direct result of his personal military career. Then we met Tiberius, Gaius Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. These four held on to power because of their blood connections with Augustus and Caesar. Thus far, the emperorship has made perfect sense, as long as you can accept confusing and arbitrary dynasties as sensical. However, the Julio-Claudians died with Nero. Emperors could now be made in the provinces. Galba was the first to be hailed as emperor. He was a logical choice given his long and successful career and extraordinary lineage. Next came Otho, who rose to power as a direct result of his personal connections with imperial administration and the proximity of his family with the Julio-Claudians as a whole. It's in this episode, then, that we have the first truly random emperor, Aulus Vitellius. This is the 9680 Podcast, Episode 12, Greedy Guts, The Random Emperor. It's unclear how aristocratic the family of Vitellius is, but we do know for sure it isn't nearly as aristocratic as you'd expect from the Emperor of the Romans. The family of Vitellius didn't become a big player in Roman politics until his father, who was thrice consul and one of the primary members of Claudius' administration. The future emperor had such bad omens at the time of his birth that his parents tried their best to keep him out of politics. Supposedly, Vitellius spent his youth in Capri during Tiberius' self-imposed exile. It's quite likely that Vitellius was, and I'm not quite sure how to put this, a sexual subject of Tiberius. The mental result of your parents wanting you to not succeed in life in conjunction with your monarch keeping you in his sex palace are most definitely enormous. So I think we can attribute lots of Vitellius's shortcomings to this supervillain type origin story. From a young age, Vitellius spent most of his time and energy engaged in drinking, partying, gambling, and most importantly, feasting. The impression I get from the ancient sources is that Vitellius was liked by the later Julio-Claudians because he was the type of guy you could have a drink and a laugh with. Gaius Caligula liked his skill in chariot racing, and Claudius liked his gambling skills. Vitellius would hold a couple magistracies in his career thanks to these connections. But he never really held any consequential positions. It seems that the horoscope at his birth stuck with him throughout his life. He wouldn't be allowed important postings because the gods foretold failure in him. The gods were, of course, right, since the first important posting he got led to a violent civil war in his death less than a year later. It's because of the political shortcomings of Vitellius that Galba's appointment of him to Germania Inferior is quite the enigma. I talked in previous episodes about how the appointment was made in particular because he wasn't very good at his job, and so wouldn't be likely to revolt. Vitellius was aristocratic, and had connections everywhere, so nobody would necessarily disagree with the posting. But he also wasn't the type of man you'd want in charge of a hyper-militaristic border province. Though, it could even be more superficial than this. It seems likely that Galba's administrators knew Vitellius personally, and expected high rewards for posting him there. This seems like enough motive to convince me, since Galba's advisors would absolutely place their wallet above the well-being of the Empire. Whatever the reason, though, the result of the appointment was thus. Vitellius was sent to the most dangerous province in the empire. This short biography of Vitellius is why I'm describing him as the first truly random emperor. A case could be made for Otho to be the first random emperor, given that there's no real reason he should have ruled beyond his own ambition. The main difference I see in Otho and Vitellius 
is that exact ambition. Otho spent the better part of a year specifically trying to get himself into the imperial administration. Many people thought that he would be adopted by Galba. Many people expected him to be the heir to the empire, or at the very least, they wouldn't have been surprised by the choice. Because of this, the revolt was more or less expected, and his rule ended up being respected as well, because he did a fairly good job. He was definitely too young, and he didn't have particularly good lineage, he didn't have the type of legitimacy of a dynasty, but that shouldn't take away from the fact that he continuously put himself at the center of power throughout his life. Meaning that, while Otho had no particular reason to be a ruler above anyone else, he put in the work to make it seem that way at the very least. Vitellius, on the other hand, spends his time in the amphitheater and the taverns, not caring about important jobs. Vitellius, in truth, was only promoted to emperor because he was the only guy close to the rebelling army, and nothing else. He was the only aristocratic man around for them to choose. Plus, Vitellius would carry on his buddy-buddy attitude when he was appointed to Germania Inferior. He was known to drink and feast with his soldiers, which no doubt made his men like him. Like him above any other immediate choice to become emperor. This made him maybe not the logical choice for a revolt, since he had no real redeeming qualities to base the revolt on like Galba had, but he was the favorite of the army, and at this point, that's all that matters. The Romans had gone so far down the civil war rabbit hole that the violent rebellions within the army don't even have to originate from men like Caesar or Vespasian, truly capable generals who used their talents to launch their revolts. In the case of Vitellius, he isn't even a competent or talented general, and we're at a point in history where that doesn't even matter. The Roman army, really for the first time, had appointed a through-and-through -through figurehead. And for this, Vitellius is the first random emperor in my books. Vitellius' ascension reminds me of nothing but Otho's. And with Otho, we were blessed with a complete 180 turn upon ascension. Otho became hyper-aware of how precarious his rule was, and simply tried his best to keep everything together. As for Vitellius, the matter of him becoming emperor did not change the way in which he lived his life. The immediate aftermath of Vitellius' army's victory over Otho was an unparalleled plunder of Italy, which is obviously entirely unacceptable to most Romans. The soldiers, mostly natives to Italy, knew exactly where to go to get the best loot from the biggest and most poorly guarded estates. The leaders of Vitellius' army were relatively powerless to stop the rampage, but it seems that no attempt was ever made to stop them. In general, I get the sense that Vitellius allowed his troops to plunder to their heart's content on purpose. Nearly immediately after taking control, Vitellius put the Othonian loyalists to death, as we'd expect. His position was quite shaky. Otho had, at the moment of his death, the support of nearly the entire empire. What would worry Vitellius is that he wouldn't be able to gain this much wide-reaching support, and that a new revolt may start not long after he starts his rule. Recall that at this point in history, three main fighting forces in Rome were the Rhine, Danube, and Syrian legions. The Rhine legions, the one stationed in Germania, were under Vitellius' direct control. The Syrian legions were on the opposite end of the empire, caught up in the war in Judea under Vespasian, so they weren't to be worried about. This leaves the Danube legions in the Balkans, who ultimately held the power in their hands. Their position in the middle of the empire meant that whichever side had their support not only had one of the largest fighting forces in the empire, but would also control the passage between the eastern and western empire through the Balkans. These legions were loyal to Otho, and it was their support that Otho's troops were counting on to win the war for them after their defeat to the Vitellian troops. For Vitellius, though, it should definitely have been his primary concern to secure their loyalty. For one thing, indulging in his troops' excesses may have projected to the Danube legions that Vitellius was a true soldier's emperor. 
Or maybe it just made them hate him. Vitellius reportedly granted any favor to anyone, and would go even so far as to joke around with his men about the atrocities they're committing, which backs up the idea that he was fine with it or that he encouraged it. Vitellius was as dramatic, flamboyant, and extravagant as possible, which no doubt drew attention to himself as some kind of extraordinary emperor. Or again, maybe this just made people hate him. However, the execution of Otho's allies would not only have enraged, but caused fear in the Danube Legion, since who knows, maybe they'll be next. This will inevitably sow the seeds of Vitellius' defeat, because Titus Aurelius Fulvus, as discussed in episode 7, will convince the legions in the Balkans to join Vespasian which is a turning point in the war. Vitellius definitely tried to convince the populace that he was a military man. Ignore the fact that he had next to no military experience and that he was far too unhealthy to do any fighting himself. According to Suetonius, Vitellius marched into Rome, flanked by a fanfare of trumpets, dressed in a commander's cloak with a sword in hand. His soldiers were all in military gear with swords drawn and their banners in the air. It was a show of force, intimidation, and attempting to create a divine, military persona for the emperor. His march into Rome would therefore be reminiscent of, for example, Caesar's march on Rome in 49 BC. It's a clear and obvious piece of propaganda, and was likely done in part to scare his enemies away. The idea was to project the military power of Vitellius over everyone, to make them give up on their coups and conspiracies out of fear of him. Vitellius' rebellion ultimately came from the army, that's where he drew his power from and he hoped that he could get all the Roman legions to his side. So he projected an imperial administration wherein the military was the only thing on the emperor's mind. They were the ones who created him, and he was going to give back. He was attempting to, above all else, establish a type of military dictatorship in a vein that departs from the model of the Augustus Princeps. Augustus's original role for the emperor was holding multiple offices at once and pretending that the republic still exists, with a facade of bureaucracy and democracy. But here with Vitellius, we have an emperor deliberately projecting military might before anything else. And so to continue in this military dictatorship type of rule, Vitellius ruled with an iron fist. Executions were ordered left and right. Prominent Romans were executed in the same way that petty criminals and slaves would have been and the ruling class lived entirely in fear. This sense of fear had last been around in the times of Nero, and so it's fitting that in one of his first acts as emperor while he was in Rome, Vitellius displayed his appreciation for Nero, making a public commemorative offering to the dead emperor. You could certainly say that Vitellius had a specific style of emperorship. His entire administration was putting up a specific kind of facade, whether intentional or not. The military make-belief is one aspect of this, convincing his subjects and his soldiers that he's a true Roman general like the Caesars and Scipios of old. But it goes further than this. It seems to me that Vitellius wanted to be seen as a relatable, human, and fun type of emperor, just as he wanted to be perceived by his friends and soldiers by doing all his partying and feasting. This all may be a result of his upbringing, where his parents didn't want him to succeed in life, so he ended up finding friends by being over-the-top dramatic and excessive, Vitellius was a favorite of the people, and was frequently cheered when he appeared at the theaters and at games, which was very frequently. And as mentioned, he was a friend of previous emperors for chariot and gambling skills. He was a favorite of the soldiers because he would converse, play games, and invite them to his extravagant banquets. And Vitellius attempted to naturally bridge his reigns of previous ones by not being bothered by depictions of previous emperors on coins and upholding the wishes and edicts of previous emperors. In all honesty, 
Vitellius hardly chased after members of previous administrations, and the amount of executions he ordered in this respect for a purge against Eothonians or Galba or Nero supporters was far less than you'd expect from an emperor that even I've been calling really cruel. The initial purge of the most loyal Othonians is completely expected and reasonable. It's just a typical thing to happen in this point in history. After every violent takeover of the empire, this is inevitably going to happen. Vitellius would barely track down people for old debts and granted the wills of the soldiers who fought against him. Vitellius reportedly didn't lose touch with his old friends once he became emperor and ensured that his friends and families were taken care of. Of course, this sounds sweet, but everything he did was at the expense of the Roman people. After securing his rule, Vitellius separated his army and dispersed them across his empire. What's telling about this strategic move is that something like a third of his army wasn't posted in crucial provinces, but they were told to build amphitheaters for his favorite advisors, so they could personally hold games and celebrate their birthdays. The most positive thing that I can say about this is that it's quite impressive that these amphitheaters appeared to have been completed and used within Vitellius' reign. Eventually, the eastern provinces, including Vespasian and the Syrian legions, would, in a vague manner, pledge some amount of allegiance to Vitellius. Vitellius felt entirely safe as a result of this, and completely let himself go. You can get a sense of how disturbing Vitellius' behavior as emperor was from Tacitus, where the ancient historian writes, in a really informal and relatable manner, it would almost pass belief were I to tell you to what a degree the insolence and sloth of Vitellius grew upon him when messengers brought the news that the East had sworn allegiance to him. Both the emperor and the army, as if they had no rival to fear, indulged in cruelty, lust, and rapine. No doubt, if Vitellius truly did spend his teenage years in Capri with Tiberius, he would have learned from the best how to be a distant, cruel, and disinterested emperor. Vitellius indulged in extraordinarily excessive feasts. Up to five times a day, he would have the most expensive and exotic foods prepared for him. Of course, Vitellius would more often than not throw up what he's eaten so that he could eat even more. According to Cassius Dio, for hundreds of years after his reign, Romans would call specific extravagant and exotic dishes Vitellian. We're told that Vitellius would have senators host him for dinner, which is typical for emperors of this time. The banquets that they were expected to hold should be worth the emperor's time, right? And so, if you didn't supply thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of food, you would be embarrassed and ostracized. Vitellius would be hosted by sometimes four different people each day, getting each meal served to him in the most expensive receptions imaginable. Some men avoided hosting the emperor, which normally would have been a great honor and sign of status, simply out of fear of bankruptcy. Both Dio and Tacitus estimate that over his seven-month reign, Vitellius would have spent the equivalent of hundreds of millions to billions of dollars on his banquets and other excesses. Who knows how true that number is? But it does signify just how exorbitant this man was, and how his individual feasting took a measurable toll on the economy of the largest empire in the world. Multiple sources describe a meal that was made out of various animal tongues and organs, that would have cost like a million dollars to make. Dio also explains that even Nero's needlessly expensive golden palace was not fancy enough for the emperor, and especially not for the empress. Suetonius gives many specific detailed examples of the executions and murders that Vitellius ordered. It's hard to believe that most of these actually occurred as written, but we can appreciate Suetonius's message that Vitellius ordered lots of executions, 
he liked watching the executions, and he liked making them really personal. We're at the point in the episode now where I need to tell you that something funny happened. Last episode, I mentioned that we'd next see Lucius Virginius Rufus again in 30 years. Well, you'll be as shocked as I am to hear that he'll be briefly showing up again today. I had no idea that there'd be more to say about Rufus at this time, but he gets mentioned in one incident by Tacitus. Maybe I didn't realize it because he's only referred to as Virginius. In any event, I have to talk about it. Quick recap on Rufus. In early 68 AD, Vindex launched the first revolt against Nero. Rufus was the governor of Germania Superior, and he led an army to squash Vindex's revolt. Rufus then said that he wouldn't stop any other popular revolts. His troops attempted to hail him emperor, he declined, and then he joined up with Galba once Galba's revolt was started. Galba took him off his province and also made him briefly consul. He stopped being consul just before the start of the reign of Vitellius, so during the reign of Vitellius he was just a guy. He had no postings that he was holding, no consulship, he was just a guy. So at a particular banquet in northern Italy that Vitellius was holding, he had Virginius as his guest. As what I'd expect to be typical for a Vitellian banquet, the notoriously disordered and drunk soldiers got into a quarrel. Tacitus unfortunately does not go into nearly enough detail on exactly how, but a wrestling match between a Vitellian Rhine legionnaire and a local Gallic auxiliary turned into a large squabble, which turned into an entire battle with hundreds of men fighting. Naturally, the Rhine legionnaires demolished the Gallic auxiliaries. The Gallic auxiliaries would have been native Gauls that would have been enlisted by the Roman Empire as additional support for the normal legion makeup. So they were less trained, less disciplined, acting on the kind of the side of the army. And so the seasoned veteran Rhine legions had no problem taking out a couple hundred Gallic auxiliaries. Keep in mind that these were also Rufus's former troops. They had now won at least two decisive battles in the Civil War, against Vindex and against Otho. They were more or less unstoppable. What happened in the confusion of the weird little battle was that one of Virginius's slaves started a rumor that during the battle, Virginius had managed to get a nearby legion, a legion that was formerly loyal to Otho, to turn around, kill Vitellius, and put Virginius on the throne. Sounds like a crazy, nonsensical plan, because it is. It's obvious that this wasn't happening. It was obvious to Vitellius, but nevertheless, the Rhine legionnaires begged Vitellius to execute Virginius, their former general that they tried to make emperor. Vitellius saw through this nonsensical plan and didn't punish Virginius, in part because he didn't do anything wrong, but also because he didn't feel he deserved any punishment. According to Tacitus, Virginius was still admired, still retained his high reputation. And so even now, with several emperors in between Virginius's initial posting to Germania and now, he's still too influential, too important to be killed, even when the most important military unit in the empire is clamoring for their death. I had to include this little nugget because it shows how crazy the Vitellian banquets can be, and also because following the story of Lucius Virginius Rufus has become my favorite subplot in the Year of the Four Emperors. In any event, back to the main topic, when Vitellius went to the site of the decisive battle over Otho's army, he enjoyed seeing all the bodies and carnage at the battle site. I for one would have thrown up at the sight of mangled corpses strewn about in piles over a field. Vitellius, on the other hand, seemed to genuinely enjoy it. After the actual ruling of the empire, Vitellius delegated that annoying task to two administrators. 
the ones who we built the amphitheaters for before. Or I suppose, if they're the ones really in charge, they built the amphitheaters for themselves. The soldiers were extremely poorly behaved in the city. Vitellius' army overflowed in Rome, and the soldiers were just sort of everywhere all the time, doing whatever they wanted with no punishment. Vitellius actually didn't have a lot of money to spend, believe it or not, so it was at least, it was at least in part a deliberate choice to allow the soldiers to run amok in Rome, since he couldn't pay them enough to bribe their loyalty. He had to bribe them with a lawless city to hang out in. According to Tacitus, the only way to get promoted in the Vitellian regime was to indulge in excess and match the emperor's feasting and partying, and that no legitimate Roman senator could expect promotion in the Vitellian regime if he wasn't a super hard partier. On the 24th of September, Vitellius celebrated his 54th birthday. The party was city-wide, was held over several days, the entire empire was in celebration of their emperor, and the sheer amount of gladiators and other games being held was simply offensive to many people in the city because it took up the entire life of the city. The Vitellian party life will peak and more or less end with this party because the end of the regime is approaching. It was all the way back in July when Vespasian and the eastern provinces had declared revolt. So Vitellius has been kind of screwing around for a while. This had been terrible news for him and it scared Vitellius, but for the time being he had nothing particular to worry about because the Rhine and Danube legions were on his side. Like I said, that's two-thirds of the primary fighting force of the Empire. Even with all the support in the world, Vespasian would have a hard time revolting. Eventually, though, the Danube legions would side with Vespasian, and from there, it's all over. That'll be all for this episode. Until next time, if you want to ask me questions or just leave suggestions for the podcast, you can head over to my de facto website, the 96AD subreddit. Just head over to reddit.com r 96AD, you can find the link in the podcast and episode description. I'll be posting updates about the podcast there, and I'll respond to anybody who posts there or messages me. Next episode, I'll tackle Vespasian's rise and methodical start to his rebellion, and we'll see the event that would shape the tone of Domitian's life. I'll see you then. <laughs>